0: reading this morning from Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, "'See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her.' And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes.' The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren." Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Gered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, the Bible is interesting, isn't it? It's very honest. It presents the heroes of our faith with all candor. It doesn't leave out their faults and their sins. It doesn't present them as some sort of superhero with no weaknesses. Adam was created perfect and sinless in the pristine garden of the Lord, but then he fell into sin after the flood, or after eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Noah was called righteous in his generation, but then the scripture is honest with us about his sin of drunkenness and the attendant Uh, consequences of that. Abram was the father of the faithful, the father of the nation of Israel. Last week, we saw the great doctrine of justification by faith alone exemplified in Abram believing God and the promise that God had given him. But here in the very next chapter, we have the fall of Abram. Now, I call it the fall of Abram because like Adam, And Noah, before him, Abram falls into sin. In fact, the sin is almost in direct contradiction to the justification by faith alone that we saw in the previous chapter, which just goes to show that even Abram, the father of the faithful, still had moments of reliance on his own effort rather than on faith. And yet... He's still justified by his faith. He's still in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And that should be an encouragement to us. We too have times when we begin to take matters into our own hands, to look at, to our own works, uh, to justify us, to, to think that our efforts somehow make us acceptable and right in God's sight, to rely on our own wisdom our own strength to accomplish what only God can accomplish. And we'll see this morning how Abram fell into this and how uh, his efforts did not accomplish the promise of God. We'll see that when we fail to wait on the Lord, but by our own wisdom and our own work attempt to accomplish the will of God, we invariably end up violating the law of God. And this does not accomplish righteousness in any way. It accomplishes unrighteousness. In fact, it brings a curse. There are really two parts to this text this morning verses 1 through 6 deal with Abram and Sarai, and then verses 7 through 16 deal with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. But it's all one narrative working together to make this point about the futility of man's own wisdom and work and the mercy and grace of God. If you'll remember, God had called Abram to leave his homeland, to leave his his family, his father's household, to go to the land that God would lead him to. And God had promised at that time, this was back in chapter 12, God had promised to make him into a great nation, to give him numerous descendants, a multitude too great to number. But we were told even then that Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren childless. So Abram begins to think that perhaps his servant, Eleazar of Damascus, would would have to inherit since he has no children, no heir. But God promised him that he would have children of his own. We saw this in chapter 15, verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Well, then God, again, promised Abram numerous offspring, too many to count, who would come from his own flesh, not his servant, but his own offspring. In verse 6 of chapter 15, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So there's our great statement of justification by faith, by believing In the Lord. Abram was counted righteous in God's sight on the basis of his belief, not his actions. But then chapter 16 opens with these words Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So there's an obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise. Sarai is still barren. Now, Abram has acknowledged God. In in chapter 15, to be Adonai Yahweh, the self-existent, sovereign ruler of all things. He's the maker of heaven and earth. A barren wife doesn't really seem like that big of a thing to a sovereign and all-powerful God. But from the human perspective, it seems huge. I have no offspring. I have no child. God has promised me that my descendants will be numerous, that they will be a great nation, and yet I have no children. And remember, Abram is 75 years old when God calls him out of Haran to come to the land of promise. Now, 10 years have passed. We see that in verse 3 that the events here in chapter 16 take place that tells us after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So, Abram has waited. Ten years for God to act on his promise, but he's still childless, and he's not getting any younger. He's now 85 years old, and that's a little old to be having children. Sarah, his wife is 75 now. She's 10 years younger than him. So from man's perspective, the situation is beginning to look desperate. So Sarai comes up with an idea. Verse 1 introduces to us Sarai's maid, Hagar. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now, remember who is writing this and and who uh, his original audience would have been. Moses is the human author here. He's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Moses, who was raised in Egypt, led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And, and that nation of Israel, on their way back to the Promised Land, having just come from slavery, are reading this. They're the first generation to read these scriptures. They've just left slavery in Egypt. And down through the centuries, the Old Testament authors will continually use the nation of egypt to represent bondage to slavery and sin and so scripture makes a point of letting us know that hagar is an egyptian here in verse 1 and in verse 3 she is called the egyptian the subtext is that this idea that sarai is about to put forward is not a good one it's leading abram and sarai into bondage to sin Sort of like Adam and Eve's fall, their decision in the garden to eat the fruit led them into slavery, to sin. In fact, there are a number of parallels here between Abram's fall in Genesis 16 and Adam's fall in Genesis 3 that we'll see as we go along, which clearly indicate that we're meant to read this chapter as the fall of Abram. So Sarai has this maid servant who is an Egyptian, and so she comes up with this scheme to try and accomplish the purposes of God. It's been 10 years with no child. Abram and Sarai are beginning to despair of ever having an heir. And so Sarai presents this idea to her husband. Now, what's interesting about this is that she clearly recognizes God's sovereign hand at work in the delay that they have experienced in not having children. She says in verse two, So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So she sees that God has promised Abram an heir from his own body. And she sees that she's not having children. And she's determined, not that God made a promise he couldn't keep. Not that that God made a promise and, and now there's some defect in her that God can't overcome. No, she sees that God has restrained her from having children. It is God himself that is behind her barrenness, her childlessness. She recognizes this, and so she gets to thinking about the promise. Well, now the promise to Abraham was that one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So Sarai comes up with this brilliant piece of logic that says, well, God never said the heir would come from my body. She said it would come from his body, from my husband. God's closed my womb. I can't have any children. I'm getting old. So maybe God intends the heir to come through another woman. You can kind of see her logic and how she got there. And so she she has this maid, Hagar, the Egyptian. And it says in verse 2, she's speaking to her husband, says, "'See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. "'Please go into my maid. "'Perhaps I shall obtain children.'" By her. I think it's clear that Sarah isn't just wanting a child because she wants a child. If that were the case, they could have just adopted one. No, she's thinking about the promise. The problem is, she's trying to keep God's promise for him. She's using worldly wisdom to come up with a solution to a problem when she should have simply recognized that the problem wasn't a problem for an almighty God, and she should have left it to him. Instead, she uses her intellect to design a way for her and Abram to do something other than wait on the Lord. Psalm 37, 34 says, Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that waiting on the Lord doesn't come easy for most of us. It's something that we struggle with. We tend to think we need to be accomplishing something. We need to be doing something, anything, when often we're simply called to wait on the Lord. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, it means many things, but I want to submit a simple definition this morning, that waiting on the Lord is not passive inactivity but rather it is prayerful obedience to God's known will and dependence on God to keep his promises. It is not passive inactivity, but it is prayerful obedience to God's known will and dependence on God to keep his promises. So waiting on the Lord doesn't mean doing nothing. It doesn't mean being lazy, right? Abram had been led by God to the land of Canaan and he had obeyed. He left his homeland, he left his father's house and followed God to the land. And he lived in the land. He rescued Lot. These are things that he should have done in obedience to God. So waiting on God involved obedience to his known will. In his second letter, the apostle Peter speaks of the new heavens and the new earth that we anticipate coming at the end of the age He says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a waiting for the Lord to bring about the new heavens and the new earth to keep his promise. But that waiting is filled with obedience, with growth in grace, growth in our knowledge of God. And that acting in obedience is with the full knowledge that it is God who will keep his promise. It is God who saves Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And we we saw this in previous chapters. Abram went and rescued Lot, but it was the Lord who delivered, not Abram. And Melchizedek made that clear. But furthermore, this obedient, expectant waiting is prayerful. Isaiah chapter 31, verse one says, "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help "'and rely on horses, "'who trust in chariots because they are many, "'and in horsemen because they are very strong, "'but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, "'nor seek the Lord.'" So here's an example of Egypt being put in place of trusting in men and in our own efforts when what should have happened was seeking the Lord, waiting on him prayerfully. Abram and Sarai should have actively obeyed God's known will and prayerfully waited on him to keep his promise. Instead, they took matters into their own hands. Now, obviously, there are some things that we know we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work with our hands to till and plant the ground and not just sit around waiting for God to miraculously bring a harvest. But we can't make the crop grow. That's God's job. We can put it in the ground, but God makes it grow. We're supposed to do the work of the ministry, testify of Christ to our neighbors and by our love for one another. We're supposed to make disciples and teach them all things that Christ has commanded us. But we cannot regenerate the hearts of sinners. That's God's work, not ours. Often what happens, though, is that we get impatient. We, we start thinking like Sarai. We know that uh, the church growing would be a good thing. So we start coming up with ideas about what we can do to make it grow. How can we gather more people? problem is God has told us what to do. Preach the word, pray, worship, love one another. He'll make it grow if we are obedient. But instead... Instead of studying the word to preach it, we start studying stand-up comedians so we can make people laugh because that'll bring people in. Instead of planning the worship service based on our biblical convictions, we start planning it based on opinion surveys, metrics about what people want in a church. Invariably, this leads to not doing the things that God has instructed us to do. Instead, we do things that we think people want. Well, that's what happens with Abram and Sarai. Look, look at her plan here in verses 2 and 3. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So she knows that God is the one who is in control of conception. So what she should have done was wait prayerfully on the Lord. Instead, she comes up with a way around the waiting. Then she justifies it, uh, technically within the boundaries of the promise, right? It's going to come from Abraham's body, but it violates God's design for marriage. In chapter 2, God created one man and one woman. That was his design. Now, polygamy had become accepted in the world. We've seen this previously in Genesis, but it wasn't God's design. It wasn't God's command for marriage. So Sarai's plan of action, rather than waiting, was to follow the world's wisdom and the world's methods. And it led to breaking God's law concerning marriage. So she gives the maid to be a wife, not a concubine or a harlot, She's justifying her actions as morally okay because she used the terminology wife. Though you'll notice that when God speaks, he never calls Hagar a wife. He calls Sarai Abram's wife. Sarai is using worldly wisdom and worldly methods to try and obtain God's promise. And Abram goes along with this plan. Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Now, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. Where have we heard that language before? Genesis 3. So here's our parallel between the fall of Adam in the garden and the fall of Abram here. In Genesis 3, when God was speaking to Adam after his sin, it says in verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. And now we're told Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Also in Genesis 16, it tells us, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid. In Genesis 3, Eve took the fruit. In Genesis 16, Sarai gave her maid to her husband. In Genesis 3, Eve gave to her husband who was with her. In Genesis 16, Abram then went in to Hagar. In Genesis 3, Adam then ate the fruit. The narrative here in Genesis 16 is obviously structured to remind us of the fall in Genesis 3. The sin is the same, trying to do for ourselves what is God's to do and not man's. To take the place of God, accomplishing his work in our own strength and our own wisdom. And just as Adam's sin spread to all mankind, so the sin of Abram and Sarai spread. It spread to Hagar, at first, they defiled the marriage bed, and then she did as well. And then she comes to despise Sarai, tells us this in verse 4. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now, the interesting thing here is that it's already been acknowledged that God is in control. Sarai didn't get pregnant because God refrained, restrained her from getting pregnant. He could have kept Hagar from conceiving had he wanted to, but he didn't. When she conceived, it was of the Lord's design to allow this. And he allowed it in order to show that the will of man would not accomplish the blessing of God. But Hagar is being sinful in her response to the situation. She receives a blessing from God, and then she lets it go to her head begins to think that she's better than her mistress, and so she despises Sarai. Now, if you'll remember, after Adam and Eve's sin, there was a fair amount of finger-pointing. No one wanted to take the blame for what had happened, so Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. Well, the same thing happens here in verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'My wrong be upon you. "'I gave my maid into your embrace, "'and when she saw that she had conceived, "'I became despised in her eyes.'" The Lord judge between you and me. Sarai had the idea, but then she blames Abram for the result. And just as Adam stood by and watched his wife be tempted by and communicate with the serpent instead of doing his duty as the head, rebuking the serpent, casting it out of the garden, so too Abram heeded the voice of his wife. He went along with her plan, and then when it didn't turn out like they had hoped that it might, and she begins to blame him, he dodges the responsibility and tells her to act. She can act as the head of the household. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. You deal with it. You take care of it. I don't want to be in charge. Now, he should have rebuked Sarai for this idea to begin with. But, but at the least, he should have taken responsibility. He's the head of the household. He should have led the, situa- the response to the situation. Instead, he steps aside and lets Sarai take the lead. And this becomes a perennial problem down through the ages as husbands fail to lead in the household. And so the entire household becomes a mess. Instead of waiting on the Lord, Abram and Sarai turned to worldly wisdom and worldly methods. They defiled the marriage bed, and not because they were pursuing lustful passions, but because they're trying to do God's job for him, take his place, just as Eve and Adam had desired to be like God. Well, then Hagar gives in to her pride, and the sin has consequences for all of them. Sarai is despised by her maid who should have honored her. Abram has to deal with these accusations and complaints from his wife who should have submitted to him and honored him. And Hagar, well, she gets treated harshly by Sarai who should have treated her with gentleness and compassion. Abram told Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Well, what did Sarah please? When Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Sin always has consequences. Even when we repent and receive forgiveness from the Lord, there are consequences to our actions, particularly in our relationships with other people. Sin brings a curse, not a blessing. Adam and Eve ate the fruit in an attempt to become like God, seeking a blessing that wasn't theirs to take, They brought a curse on all mankind because of their sin. Abram and Sarai sinned in an attempt to bring about the blessing God had promised, but by means of their own wisdom and of worldly practices. And as a result, their household is full of strife, contention, harshness. When we fail to wait on the Lord, but by our own wisdom and our own work, attempt to accomplish the will of God, we invariably violate His law, And instead of a blessing, we find a curse. Now we've got to turn our attention to Hagar. Hagar, the Egyptian maid, she's pregnant with a child, Abram's child. God had made a promise concerning Abram. He would be the father of nations. His descendants would be innumerable. And ultimately, the promised Messiah would be his seed, So where does this child fit into that picture? What is to become of Hagar? She's fled because Sarai was being so harsh with her. Well, first notice where she is fleeing to in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. She's on her way back to Egypt. Now we know this from other passages and what they say of this land sure we know that it's south of Canaan according to Genesis 20 verse 1 we know that it's east of Egypt according to Genesis 25:18 and we know from Exodus 15:22 that as Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt they cross through the Red Sea and enter the wilderness of Shur so it seems clear that Hagar was fleeing back to Egypt which makes sense it's her homeland But remember, Egypt represents bondage to sin. So here's Hagar fleeing from Abram's tents, fleeing from God's chosen people back to Egypt, back to sin. She has despised Sarai, Abram's wife, and is fleeing back, back to her sin. We know from Genesis 12, verse 3, that God had said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Well, despising her mistress was, in fact, cursing her. In fact, that's what the word means. It means to curse, to revile, and to treat with contempt. This is what Hagar had done. And God has promised that those who respond this way to Abram and his family will be cursed by God. So it makes sense that in doing so, in fleeing from Abram's tents, Hagar is heading towards her home in Egypt, which symbolizes bondage to sin. She's given way to pride. She's given way to the anger in her heart over the harsh treatment she received, and she's running straight toward letting sin rule over her. How often are we like Hagar? Someone treats us harshly. And instead of responding with humility and grace, we respond by running straight into the waiting arms of our sin. We respond with anger, with pride, with harshness, bitterness of our own. But notice the beauty of this passage. While Hagar is fleeing, what happens? It says in verse 7 Now the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. She wasn't looking for God but he was looking for her. Now, how wonderful is this? Our God is one who seeks and saves the lost. Even when we don't seek him, but we run from his blessings, he seeks us out and saves us. God finds her. God reveals himself to her. God speaks to her. What an amazing blessing. I don't know about you, but I've never seen God visually. God has never appeared to me and spoken to me in this way. This is an incredible blessing that Hagar receives. Note what God says to her in verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now again, notice the parallel to Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do? Genesis 3, verse 8, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God comes looking for them, asking, where are you? Well, here God comes looking for Hagar after the fall in the household of Abraham. And he asks her, where have you come from and where are you going? And so she tells him that she is fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. What happened when God came to Adam in the garden after the fall? Well, there was both a curse and a promise. Well, the same is true once again here. First, God tells her to return to Sarai. He says in verse 9, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, that's hard. That's hard. Sarai had been harsh with her. Hagar had been mistreated, and now God is telling her return. Submit yourself to whatever treatment Sarai inflicts on you. This doesn't make sense according to worldly human wisdom. We would naturally do what Hagar did and flee from the sort of harsh treatment that she had received. But God tells her to return. There's a blessing to be found in obedience, a blessing to be found in being part of the household of God, which is Abraham's household at this moment in history. If Hagar would know the blessing of the Lord, she must return to her mistress. And we see this in the pages of the New Testament as well. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his master. Onesimus is a slave. Paul doesn't tell him, hey, listen, slavery is wrong. You don't have to go back. No, he sends him back. He tells him to be obedient and submissive to his master. Now, of course, he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. But nevertheless, he sends him back. Peter writes in his first letter, "'Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, "'not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, "'for this is commendable.'" If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Submit yourself, even when they're harsh with you. Even Christ, our Lord, suffered in the flesh. This is the way of God. It's contrary to the wisdom of man. So God sends Hagar back to her mistress. Notice also that he sends her back to her mistress, not her husband. Sarai had given Hagar to Abram to be his wife, it said in verse 3. But that was the way of the world, not the way of God. God didn't recognize Hagar as a wife. Sarai was Abram's wife. Hagar was a slave, not a wife. This is an important thing for us to note. Definitions matter. Marriage is God's design, and it's intended for one man and one woman. God doesn't call it a marriage when there's a third party involved because it no longer fits the definition. The culture said it did. The culture said she's a wife. Sarai went along with the cultural definition, but God said that's not what marriage is. In our day, polygamy isn't the issue, is it? Not yet. Our culture is trying to redefine marriage, though. Our culture says marriage is any union of two people, regardless of their sex. God says a marriage is one man and one woman. So the homosexual unions celebrated in our culture are not marriage by God's definition and should not be called such by us. I've heard the term so-called same-sex marriage. I've also heard the term same-sex mirage, which I kind of prefer. It is a mirage. It's not a marriage doesn't fit the definition. And one has to wonder why our culture limits it to two. Why? Tradition? Our culture didn't care about the tradition when they redefined it to be between any two people. So why limit it to two? Why not 3 or 5 or however many? If we've thrown out God's definition, I see very little reason other than tradition for keeping that number set at two. It seems to me there's very little preventing polygamy from once again becoming the cultural norm. But the point is here that God doesn't send Hagar back to Abram as her husband. He sends her back to Sarai, her mistress. But then he offers a blessing for her obedience in this matter. He says in verse 10, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. This is the same promise he had made to Abram. Now he makes it to an Egyptian slave. And that's in the context of her obedience to God's command to return, her proximity to Abram, to whom God had said, I will bless those who bless you. So upon returning to Abram's household, Hagar will be blessed by God. And then God speaks and gives her further details. And the narrative here sounds very familiar to other announcements of special births in the scripture, the birth of Isaac, the birth of John the Baptist even. We read in verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. Then in verse 12, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. So again, there's both a blessing and a curse here. Hagar receives a promise of a multitude of descendants, of a son to be born. She is to return and submit herself to her mistress. Her son will then grow up to be a wild man who is at odds with everyone around him. The name Ishmael means God hears. He's given this name because God heard Hagar's affliction as she suffered under the harshness of Sarai and then fled into the wilderness alone. Hagar then names God El-Roi, God who sees, because he saw her in her misery. What a blessing is it that our God sees us in our misery When it may seem that no one else takes notice of us, God sees, God hears our affliction. And though he may not remove our affliction from us, he he commanded her to return to her mistress who had been harsh with her. But he does offer a blessing for obedience. Can you imagine the humility it took for her to return? Sarai had treated her harshly because she had been disrespectful, prideful, despised her mistress. So then she became a runaway slave. To return under these circumstances would take a great deal of humility. In fact, I think it would be a pretty fearful thing. What am I getting myself into? How am I going to be treated upon my return? Not just by Sarai. What about the other servants? How, what are they going to say about me? How are they going to treat me? doesn't matter. God told her to return, so Hagar has to obey. The text doesn't even bother to tell us what her return was like. It's not important. The important thing is that she obeyed God. And verse 15 is very interesting to me. It says, so Hagar obviously has returned. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram named him Ishmael. God had told Hagar what the child's name was to be. And Abram gives him that name. That means that Hagar must have told Abram what happened. She told him, God appeared to me. Can you imagine this? Hagar returns back to Abram's household, explains that, yeah, I I ran away. I was fleeing. I was out in the desert. God appeared to me. He spoke to me. He told me to come back. He told me that the boy is supposed to be named Ishmael. God hears. Now at this point, it's likely that Abram perhaps thought that the son would fulfill the promise. God has heard. He's answered. The son is to be born. But as we'll see in chapter 17, Ishmael is not the son of the promise, but only a son of the flesh. This should have been clear from what God had said concerning Ishmael in verse 12. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. This doesn't sound like someone who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This man is to be at odds with all the families of the earth. He's not going to be a prince of peace. He's a wild man. He's going to be at war with others. He won't be a blessing to many. He will be an enemy to all. He's Abram's son according to the flesh. But as we saw in our study of Romans this past Wednesday evening, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abram. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Abram and Sarai failed to wait on the Lord. They followed the wisdom and the methods of the world in an effort to grasp the promised blessing when they wanted it, rather than waiting on God to keep his promise. And in doing so, they violated God's law concerning marriage. They brought down the curse of sin on their household rather than a blessing. But God, who sees and hears, offered mercy to Hagar, demanded obedience. He sent her back, but he gave her a blessing. He gave her grace. He revealed himself to her. What a blessing. He gave her a son, a blessing. He gave grace to Abram and Sarai they endured no punishment from God that we're told for their sin other than the natural consequences of it in their relationships. In chapter 17, next week, we'll see that God continues to bless Abram in spite of his fall here in chapter 16, that God promises a son not according to the wisdom and the will of man but according to the power of God. And that son is the one through whom the promised seed, who is Christ, will come into the world. The promise is still intact because God is a God of mercy and patience. So may we learn patience to wait upon the Lord to keep his promise while we wait obediently with eager expectation looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.